Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. I love it. It's perfect. It's good. We're back in the Horror Vanguard crypt talking about the most common single item in the Horror Vanguard crypt, and that is all of the strange fungi that grow around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, once again, we are, we are talking, we're getting into the fungal horror of existence. <laughs> okay, so here's, here's a little bit of a warm-up question while we lead into today's episode. John, do you have a favorite fungus? Ooh, that's a very, that's a very good question. Uh, what about you? Um, you know, I would probably have to say cordyceps. I, I, I think it's incredibly interesting and there are multiple kinds of cordyceps out there, not just the kind that take over the brains of insects. Um, it, it's just an interesting fungi. I'm also a big fan of slime molds. Mm-hmm, I think yeah. they are incredibly fascinating. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, like if we're talking about gourmet mushrooms, I know cordyceps is kind of gourmet now. It's incredibly hard to grow from a, from a, for a culinary perspective. Um, and it's also not widely cooked in the West. So it's a little question mark there. Um, but I'd have to go with like maybe pink lobster or lion's mane. Lion's, lion's mane is probably my favorite mushroom. Heresium, uh, Heresium ericinum, I think. Someone can correct my Latin if that's incorrect. <laughs> I also love reishi antlers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like there are, so there are multiple ways to grow reishi for people in, in our audience. Or is it reishi? For, I'll forgive my pronunciations. Um, but they can be grown vertically into like these fungoid antlers. And it is just chef's kiss. This sort of beautiful, I was about to say plant, but it is not a plant. I think oyster mushrooms are delicious. Ooh, classic. Uh, chicken of the woods. Oh my god! Yes, yes, yes. That that is a great one. That is a fantastic uh, cooking mushroom. Uh, Ladyporus, I believe, to give it its formal name. Oh, there are so many wonderful mushrooms in this world, isn't there? Uh, but of course, the best mushrooms are those which uh, get inside your head and fundamentally rewire your experience of consciousness. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it goes without saying that those are the best kinds of mushrooms. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and of course. If we're talking about things that can fundamentally rewire consciousness, um, does that mean film is a kind of fungus? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, film is inherently mycological based on its construction and the way that it, it uh, uses a mycorrhizal network to redistribute essential nutrients to the mind. Um, well, in that case, I think it's uh, probably a good, good idea to segue into today's show. Um, we are going to be talking, we are returning uh, to uh, a, probably a favorite director here on HV. We're talking about Ben Wheatley's new folk horror film, In the Earth. Um, it's, uh, it, it, we watched a field in England and this is basically a wood in England. So, so. <laughs> that is, that is very accurate. And I, I got, I got to say, I mean, like, you know, Ben, Ben Wheatley is two of two for horror Vanguard films. Uh, well, I think you mean three for three, right? Oh, that's, oh my God. I always forget high rise. Um, 
If you would like to encourage our continuing experiments into the mycological consciousness altering potentialities of cinema, um, (laughs) you can do so for the low, low price of just a few dollars a month by signing up at patreon.com slash horror vanguard. You get early access to every episode, you get bonus episodes, and of course, access to the HV Crypt, the spookiest leftist discord dedicated to talking about the three most important things communism friendship and occasionally horror movies as well again do check out patreon.com slash horror vanguard to support the show and to help us keep making more and better versions of this podcast and if we hit our new goal of ten thousand patreon supporters we'll cover ben wheatley's two directed episodes of the 2014 run of doctor who I think we should do those anyway. (laughs) I mean, it might be really fun to see how his cinematic influences show up in something so kind of pop and serialized. Um, Well, it's a brand new movie. It's a movie that got a kind of divisive response from its audience. It has like a 1.8 on Google and critics didn't really know what to make of it. So I am I am beyond pleased that ash you can give the definitive answer in the earth directed by ben wheatley what is it about we've all changed throughout the pandemic we've faced hardships been forced to grow into things that we otherwise would not have while we can't yet say how this all resolves we can say with some certainty that we've all gotten a little stranger I've been trying to decide if I feel that my experience of the pandemic has made me insular or just connected in ways that are harder for me to recognize. There are times where I feel that I communicate better through actions, moments, and sensations than I do through words. I can't make this make more sense. Maybe this isn't for the making of sense, but rather the making of dissonance. But I'm sitting here writing this in the dark, because why turn on the lights? I'm not speaking. I'm carving into the air. These words are heavy, weighted down with curses. It's not even me typing, and it's never just me speaking. It never has been, and it never could be. It's also never been just your ears that hear. Join us as we discuss Ben Wheatley's In the Earth. Ooh. Absolutely. Um, we are, we are, whether we like to or not, we are going to be talking about COVID cinema again. Um, it's sort of inescapable. The the specter haunting the show. It is sort of inescapable in a way, right? But like, I think there are some really interesting things that we can talk about with this film that don't spend all of its time kind of talking about this, this emergent concept of COVID cinema. Um, I think maybe the obvious places are in the formalism zone is to talk about its genealogy. Like what is this mm-hmm. film? Who, who are the descendants of this film? Uh, what's the kind of like, what if we were to, if we were to slice into this, like a, like a tree and we would see the rings that con- kind of constitute its being, what would those rings be made up of? Ooh. Oh, I think this is really fun because there's, the, I think there's an obvious genealogy here through British folk horror. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's there's a lot of folkloric elements to this, right? Like there's um the oh what what is uh, 
the god of the woods, Parang Feg. Yeah. And and this attempt to communicate with a, a bygone and forgotten folkloric entity or demigod or woodland spirit, I think that speaks a lot to a, a particularly British sensibility for the folk horrific. This idea that there is a, a an old way or a dead religion that that can be reached however connecting with that again causes its own troubles um, um how about you um i mean i think we can we can we can kind of talk about this in in terms of what we might call a kind of pastoral gothic um and yeah it's 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 really another way of talking about folk horror by another name it's a very particular british iteration of folk horror in certain regards it's super traditional right so the stone tape probably the biggest influence um weirdly ben wheatley says like 70s era doctor who tom baker doctor who episodes um if we want to go i can see that actually if we want to go really far back um things like algernon blackwood um and honestly again to keep it in the kind of british tradition probably someone like john Wyndham, um famous of course for the day of the triffids Interestingly, uh, there's another film which probably doesn't get mentioned that uh, Wheatley says that him and his production team looked at quite closely when they were putting this together, which is John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, which is that's, which is a super interesting idea, right? That Halloween so was a big influence. Yeah, let's dwell. I think I think I'd like to dwell on this for a second, if you'll indulge me. Where, where do you see the Halloween in this? Do you see the Halloween in this? So. Um, he's what's interesting about it is the the context of production, right? Halloween was made relatively cheap and with a relatively small oh, yeah. small crew, and was made pretty quickly. Um, and but Halloween looks incredible, right? It looks timeless. It's incredibly well put together, and it in a in a way, if you think of it in terms of commodities. Halloween looks like it has a much higher budget than it actually does, right? It because it makes incredible, mm-hmm. incredibly good use of light and sh- and shadow. Uh, and even though Halloween is suburban and this is very rural, I think it's in the use of light. It's in its attention to photography, and it's in its its relationship to other other films which are kind of like low budget or mid budget. And made by a very small, close team that you can see the closest resemblance. What do, What do you think? So, so I hadn't heard this, and when you first thought of it, my my mind instantly jump, jumped to Parang Feg, uh, the the woodland forest god that they're attempting to commune with in in the earth. And we never we never see we never see this deity, right? We never really know for certain that it's that it's there, even though its presence is felt every step of the way from the moment we enter the woods. Um, and in the original Halloween, uh, Michael Myers is referred to in the script as the shape. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because he's the boogeyman, you know, he's not a real person. He's, he's this kind of, he, he's a, he's a demigod. He's a spirit, you know, he's an entity. And I think there's some overlap with how Michael Myers as kind of this semi-embodied force pushes tension in Halloween with the way that Parang Feg, this force that's also semi-embodied it's physically present in the woods but also never really captured by the camera yeah yeah i think that's a cool connection i think that's a very cool connection 
I mean, and Wheatley's interest might have been kind of practical, right? You know, how do I how do I put this together? It was it was done in the summer of 2020 um, during one of the lockdowns in the UK, shot um, on location. But like, there is this there is this kind of thematic resonance there too. Yeah, yeah. I I I just wow, that is like that's really got me. I did not I would not have guessed that Halloween was one of the intentional influences of this, but now that you mention it, I can like feel it more than I can see it, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, but I know that you were interested in talking about a uh, friend of the podcast, and, and no doubt you've heard this thinker on several podcasts before, Goethe. <laughs> I I was extremely interested in talking about Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, um, pioneer of horror. Um, I, I, a pioneer of podcasting, too. <laughs> um, and I guess the reason I wanted to talk about Goethe is this, this film has a very deliberate use of color. Um, mm-hmm. In a way that often would get referred to as quasi or influenced by Gialli, by, you know, Italian horror, which I think is fine. But I wanted to suggest a kind of different way of talking about it, which is um, Goethe's theory of color. So Goethe um, publishes in 1810 a kind of book on the theory theories of color, which is notable precisely because it disagrees with Newtonian optics. So Newton, the Newtonian argument is that darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is is simply a negative, it's a nothing, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a void. And Goethe uh, puts it like this, light and darkness, brightness and obscurity, or if a more general expression is preferred, light and its absence are necessary to the production of color. Color itself... Mm is a degree of darkness. And the reason I was thinking about this is because it's a film with a super with moments and sequences of super saturated, super intense color choices which you would think runs against the kind of rural setting of going into the woods into a very naturalistic setting. And the way that I kind of squared this circle, this kind of aesthetic and formal choice in my mind is through this um notion of Goethe's color theory, this, this, this aesthetics of seeing darkness, not simply as a kind of negative thing, but as something which in a sense produces its own kind of visual and aesthetic texture. So what do you, what do you think? I, I think that's the way to approach this film. I, I, I think, and we'll, and we'll get into this more later on as well, but I think so much of Ben Wheatley's In the Earth is about putting pressure on the ways in which we conceive of our reality. And and this covers everything from the structure of human relationships between friends and partners to, to how we experience pain and physical loss all the way over to just simple acts like seeing and hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the the core of this movie is about attempting to pry us out of or at least my experience with the core of this movie is an attempt to like assault anthropocentrism and, or at least if not anthropocentrism entirely, the ways in which we've kind of succumbed to singular thinking about color, for example. And what I, what I call this in the notes is, is an idea of an alchemical aesthetics. 
Because mm-hmm. um, Goethe's theory of color is not necessarily just, it's not necessarily a response to kind of perceptions of optics, but is a kind of psychological theory of color, right? What does it mean to regard the world in this way? Um, and given that this is a film that is very much interested in kind of like different systems of knowledge, um, like having this um, kind of aesthetic choice in the photography, I think actually does a lot to kind of construct this new way of perceiving, which which of course is the whole alchemical project, right? Al- alchemy mm. was not necessarily just concerned with the transmutation of base metals into gold, but was about the organization of knowledge and thus the transformation of consciousness. And the organization of knowledge question we'll get we'll mm. get onto when we kind of start unpicking this the the kind of uh, apparent dichotomy between um, certain systems of knowledge and belief and contemporary scientific investigation and research. But I think the use of color provides a really interesting way into thinking how Wheatley as a filmmaker has his own particular aesthetics, especially if you contrast this with A Field in England, right? The very monochromatic psychedelia. Um, Both of them are doing the same things, but both of them are using color in such uh, interesting ways, right? Oh, a- absolutely. And now that you've been talking about Goethe's color theory, right, as an alchemical aesthetic, you can really feel the weight of that when contrasting this with a field in England. I mean, I think in, in many ways, these these two films are deeply in conversation with each other. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, to push it even further, you could say that these two films are kind of folded in on one another. They're the same film. Um Oh yeah, it's it's similar discourses but spanning generations. But there's another kind of formal point that I wanted to bring up, which I thought you would have some super interesting things to say about, which is that there's a line from a character who says that photography is a kind of magic. Um but then so is any technology when you don't know how it works. And the psychedelia sequences, the kind of big psychedelic freak out moments are very obviously, and you could go, well, this is just a mistake. The film was done very quickly. They're very obviously like layered manipulations of film. They're images that have been, uh, you're not, you're not seeing perceptions. You're seeing presentations of something, right? You're seeing, uh, uh layers of digital film. You're seeing film, which has been, uh, warped or distorted or focus angles have been changed and I'm I'm super interested to know what you think about seeing this film as a kind of like meta commentary on itself as a film about the process of filmmaking so we need to talk about Arthur C. Clarke for a second <laughs> um, so in, in his 1962 book Profiles of the Future um, Arthur C. Clarke coined coined a phrase that is, I think, useful and good, but also will forever haunt me. Um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and, and the base meaning there, of course, if you don't know how a smartphone operates, like we've all watched a hack time travel movie where someone shows a TV to a medieval peasant and they're like, my lord, how are these minstrels in thine talking box? You know, we, we, we've seen the hack interpolations of this. But what I find to be interesting about photography, and this is perhaps because I'm so close to photography, I do a lot of film photography. I'm very interested in the kind of formal qualities of film. 
it becomes more magical the more I know about how it works. Right, the, the, the more I know about film and chemical prostrate, uh, chemical <laughs> processing, <laughs> um, the more I know about film and chemical processing and, and crystal grains and like all of this stuff that goes on inside of film, the more magical it becomes, the more it goes from being a science to an alchemical art, right? We are, we are using a whole host of chemicals on, on, on a wide variety of different substrates and, and exposing them to light for a fraction of a second to, to freeze a moment in place and then and then print that out onto photographs like th that is an act of transmutation that 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 is a holy communion and when um we see in in the earth right we have um zach right zach is the guy who lost his mind uh yeah played by uh the honestly incredible reese Shearsmith. You will, you will. Okay, so watch this movie and look at Zach and then look up a picture of Reese Shearsmith and you will never be able to figure out how they got him to be in that role. It is phenomenal acting. Um, but like, so Zach is using these photographs to conduct a ritual to commune with this woodland spirit. And, and I think that this, this is such an appropriate medium for that, right? And I, I would say more so than painting and perhaps akin to sculpture, film, there's something sacred and magical and alchemic about what goes on in the process of taking a, a still or a series of moving photographs. I think another thing that's kind of useful to point out is that this film very much destabilizes the notion between kind of technology and magic um because i think this it's you know like i say worth pointing out like alchemists alchemists or magicians were natural philosophers they were proto they were they were interested in science they were interested like um the most famous example john d uh was was interested in astronomy as well as astrology those two things were not seen as contradictory you know the creation of 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 knowledge is the is the broad interest of alchemy um a really good book on this is francis yates book the the rosicrucian enlightenment um which is all about the ways in which the enlightenment was not this kind of like overcoming of superstition but was actually this kind of intersection of things like um alchemy and hermeticism and magic with emergent scientific discourses Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think like there are a lot of misconceptions for how we conceive the quote unquote dark ages, right? Even in that phraseology, there's a misconception, right? You know, like ask anyone who studies medieval periods and they will tell you that the dark ages refers to a lack of primary documentation and not a, a lack of advancement as it's typically depicted. And like one thing that I've been like particularly taken with, of course, over the the duration of the pandemic is is how uh, alchemists and scientists and priests and philosophers saw the Black Plague, you know, that in the various plagues that struck Europe and, and how and how they considered it and how in so many ways, like, I mean, like they got it in certain respects and didn't in others. Right. And, and how we consider that as like, you know 
inherently backwards uh, rather than like in a long conversation with what we're doing today kind of elides a certain sense of arrogance that we have applied to a post-industrial future. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Um, and I, I totally agree with you that there, there is, yes, photography and film is a technology, right? But it's, but that doesn't mean it isn't also kind of magic. <laughs> those, those two, those Absolutely. two things are merely um, are perspectives and attitudes towards the thing in itself. They don't necessarily tell you anything about that thing. But if we're to think, oh, if we're to think about this film as like a magic text, it might be worth thinking about what kind of text it is. So I just posed two questions in the in the notes: um, Is this a fairy tale, and is this a comedy? I love where this discussion is is going because of what this movie attempts to be in conversation with, and not only that, but just to complicate. So, so why, why don't why don't you take this away? How how do you feel about the intersection of the horrific, the fairy tale, and the comedy? Um, it's it's a very simple narrative, right? Two people break the cardinal rule. They go into the woods. They walk into the woods and something bad happens to them because there's a monster in the woods. It's a fairy story, right? Uh, the woods are full mm -hmm. of magic and dangers and the supernatural. Um, but it's also, there's also, it's also a comedy uh, because uh, there's a kind of real streak of very dark humor in this, especially with our, with our incredibly mm -hmm. stoic main character who has something wildly unpleasant happened to his feet three times in this film <laughs> and never once really seriously complains <laughs> there mm -hmm. is one scene uh, which involves Reese uh, Shearsmith with an axe which is deeply unpleasant but also very funny at the same time um, so it, it's something that is kind of going through really kind of deep-seated narrative structures, right? Don't go into the woods, you go into the woods. Um, as well as kind of layering on top of all of those things, things like the history of English folk horror, um, certain kinds of British pop culture, um, and coming out with something super kind of compelling. I I, I love this. I love this intersection, right? And, and I think it's, it's so... Um... We got we we we, we got to talk about uh, Martin Lowry's foot for a second. <laughs> um, but he gets the bottom of his foot slashed open, um, and then it's it's hastily sewn together by a crazed Zach, who uh, uses twine. To uh, stitch it uses back cat together? gut or animal gut. Oh, cat gut. Yeah, animal gut, and then also sews gut or sews sews like something into the foot, right? Something that sh I mean, you shouldn't have a lot of things sewn into your foot. So there's something uh, that should not be in the foot introduced into it during the stitching. Um, and then he attempts to amputate the the foot, but just kind of randomly hacks a bit of it off with an axe. Um, and then it's cauterized later on, and it's like we have this striation of horrible things happening to the foot which i think is symbolically important for the text of the film in a way that relates to comedy horror in the fairy tale right 
um, because this is speaking back to kind of like a folkloric tradition, right? Like, like in, in the older tellings of Cinderella, there's kind of like this foot mutilation that goes on as part of attempting to fit into the glass slipper. You know, and it's also it's also really comedic. That horrible stuff just keeps happening to his foot. It's got a little bit of a slapstick beat to it. And it's, it's his response too. you know, he's just like, oh, like by the end of it, he's like, again, you know, it's, it's kind of silly. Um, but like what kind of like on a thematic aspect, what is the foot? You know, it's 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 about stability, right? It's about balance. It's about being able to stand on your own, right? Those are some kind of like metaphoric connections we can make to the foot. Right? Well, to kind of to push this um, even further, I was listening to an interview with Ben yeah. Wheatley where he's talking about technology. And he says, oh, everyone goes, oh, well, phones mm-hmm. are technology, right? And he's like, no, 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 no. Technology, when you get real down to it, are things like shoes and bread. <laughs> That's, you know, the stuff, yeah. the stuff that you really can't, do without and the stuff that we now barely ever really think about technology or technic technic is a kind of tool it's a it's a thing that you have to hand you know uh, uh, what's the worst thing that can happen you're like oh well you might lose your phone or like you might be in no sometimes sometimes the very worst mm-hmm. thing that can happen is you lose your shoes and you have to and you have to walk yep. barefoot because it puts you at such risk mm-hmm yeah, and, and I think I think part of this uh, that, that I was perhaps a little bit circumambulating towards was there's a sense of human completeness that's woven into our technological relationships. Y- you know, like the, the the common reoccurring nightmare of of showing up to class naked, right? An apocryphal nightmare, right? That that's about uncertain relationships with technology. You know, there's no good reason why we should be embarrassed to be naked around each other because we're just, we're animals, we're naked. That's kind of just a part of our essential being. But we've come to see ourselves culturally as so woven into clothing technologies that the thought of being without those in the wrong company is is stifling in the amount of fear yeah. it generates. And that that's, that's a mediated technological relationship. And, and the, the kind of progressive damage that happens to the foot, I, I think, is, is, is focalizing those kind of uncertain relationships to technology. Well, to kind of wrap up our formalism zone, um, let's, let's talk about this kind of film's production. That, again, from this interview with Ben Wheatley, uh, as he put it, uh, 15 days is more than enough time to make a horror movie. Uh, so it was shot in just about two weeks. Um, there is a uh, a principal cast of four, a total cast of like six, um, and I guess what this brings up is the the kind of ever present specter as of late with what we might call COVID cinema. Um, so I guess wh- what what do you mm-hmm. think about about this film and its rapid turnaround and how it connects to this idea of of COVID cinema or whether that's a useful category. So um, we, we've talked a lot about COVID cinema up until this point. We've covered a lot of movies that have been made during COVID and made in conversation in part or in whole with COVID. This is the first one of those where I've really felt a, a, a connection with, with my experience of the pandemic. 
you know, in my relationship to how it's changed me and my relationships to technology and art and the people around me, the kind of feelings I've had towards the, the systems that we have been relying on to keep us alive through the pandemic that have largely failed. Um, this is the first movie where I've been like, okay, this, I, I feel like this is closer to striking a chord with my appraisal of the pandemic. And I think it's because it, it's not about having a Skype meeting while you're being attacked by a ghost. Well, it's about communing with a forest I mean, god. What I really like um, is that Wheatley said, like, during the first lockdown, everything on television looked kind of old-fashioned. It, look, it looked out of date, mm -hmm. right? Because what, what there was on British TV was, like, there was a load of, like, costume dramas. Like, nobody, nobody wanted anything that was dealing with what was actually happening in the world. Um... And he was like, "Well, how do you how do you create something that doesn't feel like it's out of date? That doesn't feel like it isn't willing to talk about what is happening, and it doesn't it doesn't address it directly, but it's there in kind of the cultural reference points that make the whole thing kind of like gel in a way that I found really really effective." Oh yeah, yeah, I I, I think that is something that's really 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 exciting about this right ben wheatley has such an interesting way of being able to capture periods while being very in conversation with a a, a long history that leads us to a present moment um yeah maybe this is maybe this is the first bit of like covid cinema that is is you know living up to the challenge of it as it were you know Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. And and not just because of the fact that during COVID, I started growing gourmet mushrooms and also got into <laughs> noise music. Not just for those reasons. <laughs> um, should, we, should, should we talk about its use of music or do you want to get into that as we get into our mycological discourse? Oh, you know, we, you know, we, can, we, can, we can start our mycological discourse with the whole section on yeah, noise music if you let's want. So let's talk about noise music and sonic communication. One of the things that goes on in this movie that I was just at the edge of my seat captivated by rewinding scenes to watch them again and again and again was that we, so our, our, uh, our characters arrive at um, a research facility during a, a plague that has shut down the entire country, you know, intimated as being COVID, but what if so much worse? Um, Martin Laurie is a new researcher who arrives at the research station and he quickly goes on a hike in the woods with fellow researcher Alma. Um, as, as they explore the woods, they meet Zach, who's become a little unstable, let's say, you know, sewing feet together with organs and doing photographic rituals mm -hmm. to a forest god. And Olivia, who has also become unhinged, but she's unhinged through the lens of scientific positivism, which makes her much more mm -hmm. acceptable to our protagonist. O Olivia is attempting to communicate to the forest God and to the mycological network in the forest using noise, like, like experimental harsh noise, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what do you think about this? What do you think about like how this, the sound design of this film, how it uses sound, 
So I, I am just in love with, with the sound design in this movie. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, one of the things that's going on here that I really appreciate, right, is that, um, and I, I do not know if Ben Wheatley is familiar with this artist, um, but there is a synth artist called Michael Loco um, who uses like little electrodes to connect mushrooms and other fungi to synthesizers, right? To a Eurotrack. Um, and then just the kind of electricity and the communications, the bioelectric communications that the fungi put out are converted into sounds, you know, a, a, as a way to bridge a linguistic and communicatory gap between the fungal and the world of the human. And I think that that intentional attempt to do that right this attempt to to mediate uh, so there's like there's like an old grimoire in the movie that contains the rituals for speaking with the forest god and that is kind of the, that's the source material for their for their scientific you know efforts so this is a, a communications technology an act of black magic a, a way of speaking to fungi Oh my God! I just I I am still not over the kind of rush I got while I while we were getting the scenes wherein you know Olivia is attempting to use noise music to communicate with this fungus god. Um, if you if you kind of uh follow follow some of the things that I write about, I've been writing about post rock quite a lot over the last uh six six months or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things that I really I really like about it is during during lockdown i found it um a kind of extraordinarily hopeful form of music precisely because it was it's communication that is both beyond and through as in going out the other side uh of language right and in a way that's that's what this kind of the use of noise music and the use of kind of like electronic feedback made me think about um and that too has a kind of precedent in kind of British culture. You know, Mark Fisher wrote about people like the caretaker a lot um, and the ways in which electronic music had this kind of capacity for meaning that was not simply linguistic, but could be expressed on a kind of, uh, on another level. And this is what I think is really interesting about what's going on here, because there's an, there there are expressive qualities of noise as music, right, and and sound as music that kind of disjars us and and moves us out of conventional spaces and conventional mm -hmm. ways of seeing the world, right? You know, your your guitar and your piano are physically designed in such a way to work with a, a very traditional Western approach to sound, even though they can be played differently. Um, they're, they're kind of you, you built to do these specific things, even though there's ways of challenging within their construction, right? I, I don't mean to downplay the, the kind of like atonal music that comes out of those instruments. Um, but like you know, a lot of noise music is using like non-instruments, right? And, and electronic instruments and synthesizers that can really literally just make noise. And as, as a way to attempt a, like, it reminds me of like all these scenes in um, movies where there's like an alien contact, right? And we're using sequences of flashing light and strange sounds to try and bridge mm. a communicatory gap. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
and and the, and that gap um is not just between the uh parang fang the the mycological forest god and and ourselves as mere mortals but it's also mm-hmm. an internal gap you know the 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 conventions that we onboard because because again shoes are a technology but music is also a technology it's a technology in the literal sense that the instruments that we use to make music are technological and it's also a a social technology right a kind of like ontological or technological hermeneutic for a way of exploring or exploring mm-hmm. and expressing human sounds and this bridges new gaps within ourselves when we have kind of this like harsh noise music that we're that's like blasting us for a good chunk yeah, of this film absolutely and uh, maybe this this kind of opens a way into thinking about why some critics were kind of very harsh towards this film um you you mm-hmm. i know you found a really good example of this and maybe it's maybe you can kind of like just quote the review and talk about uh how do we how do we respond <laughs> okay so um kevin marr of the times gave this film a two out of five star score uh kevin described this film as ending with a prolonged blast of rapid fire psychedelia that seemed like an outrageous narrative cop-out um, and I wanted to talk about how this is perhaps a valid criticism, but that it also doesn't actually matter. Uh, cinema is both a vehicle for narrative-based storytelling, but it's also a visual mm-hmm. and auditory art form. You know, uh, the, the kind of narrative that Kevin's looking for implies a direct and conventional cinema. You know, uh, Mar most likely overdetermined with his phraseology. You know, l- looking for a conventional narrative in in the sea of a more experimental film, with the way this movie just crescendos at the end. You know, the the entire body of this movie operates like a like a mm-hmm. single piece of music. You know, it's almost something that you listen to as much as you watch. And I think this is indicative of both the struggle with these kind of movies that are really formalistically challenging, um, at least when compared with like mainstream cinematic fare. Um, and it's also kind of indicative of a struggle inside the movie, right? How the movie slowly kind of like lets us in to this occult, psychedelic, almost anti-human world. I think, yeah, there's an expectation of what a film is going to be, right? There's an expectation that film will... Mm-hmm. Uh, talk in a certain way and tell stories in a certain way, and uh, that can't help but be dissatisfying if you're confronted with a film which is imagistic or um, interested in kind of like mm-hmm. the idea of forging connections that violate the cinematic convention of quote unquote linear time. Um. But then, but but then, the mm-hmm. film is also extremely clear in kind of going. Well, that's what the film is about, anyway. So, so what did so what did you expect? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and I, I think I think a lot of critics have been hard on this movie because they're just looking for something that this movie isn't. You know, they're they're, they're coming to this and they're looking for like um, they're looking at some point for the forest god to show up as a kind of deer with messed up antlers and and oh yeah, we we love a messed up deer. We love a messed up deer to chase someone through. Yeah, right. Got got gotta love. Oh, there's antlers and they're wrong. (laughs) Hell yeah. 
but that's what critics are looking for today, right? And in, in a movie with this kind of essence, you know, and this and this movie is taking that expectation and and treating treating the presence of a forest god with so much honesty and so much clarity and level headedness. In a way, this movie is presupposing like what if what if there was something in the woods you know it it wouldn't show up as like a, a big fangly beast that chases you about right that, that that's a very kind of like that's that's a bear yeah. is what you're talking about but it would show up as something much stranger and much and more imperceptible this kind of misses the point of like psychedelia is not about the external world right psychedelia is about your own internal experience and interpretation Psychedelia mm-hmm. is about the hermeneutics of reality, right? It's about how how yeah. do you mm-hmm. process the image? How do you process the the complexity of reality as you're confronted by it? Which is in that's inherently internal, and this is a film that's trying to represent internality, not some external supernatural. Oh, it's it's a big deer, but it's all wrong, as if that's what is truly scary right because because mm-hmm. the fear is the the horror yeah. of it is our sense of self being confronted by almost too much reality right it's reality that's been intensified and so overwhelms our own internal hermeneutics Yeah, the, the the monster in this movie, if it's even to be said to have a monster, is a subterranean mycorrhizal network. Of, which is of, which of is literally tendrils, you know, imperceptible. It's not gonna bite. Yeah, it's it's simply something that is too large to be meaningfully perceived by the human. Like when we think of fungi, mm-hmm. we think of the fruiting body of these life forms, right? The the little button mushroom that you probably think of when I say little button mushroom, that's that's like that is to the fungus mm-hmm. what the apple is to the tree. You know, and when I say apple tree, you you think of a tree that bears fruit. Yeah. You don't just think of the apple. So our our perception of the fungal is inherently skewed towards an anthro anthro percent oh my god. A human centered way of seeing which is, the world. Which is uh entirely undercut by the existence of the fungal itself like life human existence is is Mm -hmm. mediated by them ecosystems are mediated by them but there is a consciousness there which is not riven by this cartesian tension of like what is the i there is there is only a kind of like there is a distinctly non-human consciousness Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that's so good about this movie, right? It is it's trying to explore a space that is is kind of asking the question of what would we do if we could actually communicate with the fungal directly? You know, if we if we could make contact, right? And and you know, not not to jump ahead too far, but the final scene of this movie involves Alma, you know, approaching um the kind of perspective of the camera and saying, I'll guide you out of the woods, you know, and, and clearly at this point, almost been infused with some kind of fungal being, right? She's transcended some, some human limitation that she previously had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I think brings up 
maybe one of the big concerns of the film, which is what does it mean to know? How do we, how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we know? How, what modes of knowing are there? Uh, And where might truth be said to be most accessible? Uh, Because this Mm -hmm. is what this film is intimately bound up with. Um, Because you have essentially two different ways of working, two different ways of of living. um, Zach and, uh, oh, what's the name of the doctor? Olivia, yes. Um, So... What do you what do you think about that? What do you think about their relationship and how this film is talking about different uh, conflicting epistemologies? So, so I, I think that, I think there's three epistemological frameworks that show up in in the Earth. There, there's kind of there's Martin Lowry and uh, Alma who represent kind of what I would say is a conventional positivism, right? They believe in research and science and sound scientific principles and folklore is just a, a silly superstition from the past. Yeah, Martin even says right at the beginning, oh, no one actually believes that, do they? Yeah. It's just a story. It's just a, it's just a story. And that's, and that's kind of a, a very conventional, you know, worldview, right? Especially today, right? It's, it's this very industrialized set of beliefs. And then, and then you've got Zach and Alma, or Zach and Olivia, rather, which I think is really interesting. And Zach is presented by the movie as returning to some kind of lost pagan way, right? He's he's very much a heathen. He's he's conducting rituals and you know sewing limbs together with cat guts and like just just doing weird stuff that we would associate with a quote unquote dark age belief. However, he's still deeply technological. You know, he, he's, he's conducting his rituals using film. You know, he's got a dark room and it's and like he's got a series of tents in the woods that he lives in. And, and he's got a fully functioning dark room set up in there. And, and he's very rigorously like, you know, drugging um, Martin and Alma when he kidnaps them so he can dress them up and pose them in very specific ways and continue conducting his ritual. It's very methodical and scientific right so so his his position as being totally like heathen and anti-scientific i think is a little bit troubled by the movie itself and then you've got olivia who's ostensibly very scientific you know she's using sequences of flashing light and experimental noise synth music to try and communicate with this fungal network and she's got got an array of computers that are analyzing data and feedback and charting and graphing things and trying to understand it that way but then we realize at the end that she's working with zach that, that there, there are two sides of a coin, that, that her scientific rigor is actually in service of occult belief. Yeah, uh, th- this is what I mean when I put in the notes that uh, alchemy is a kind of science, science is not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, again, ritual, uh, occultic beliefs are, are, again, are again generally not necessarily about the supernatural, but are about the organization of knowledge and the and the uh, enhancement or expansion of consciousness the fulfillment of consciousness if you will mm-hmm. um and and in in a sense that's what religious experience is about right it's about um the mind being taken out of itself the the mm-hmm. to put it in the language of german idealism the the dissolution of the divide between subject and object yeah where you, where where humanity realizes 
realizes itself and also makes itself real. Mm-hmm. And in in a sense, that's that's precisely what Zach is interested in, right? Even if that has to be achieved through sacrifice, quite quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> And, and one thing that I find interesting here, right, to, to kind of look at this from, from, I guess, an American context when it comes to what we see as science and what we don't, um, there, there's a long-standing tradition and kind of the American anthropological and scientific community of treating indigenous oral traditions as being non-scientific, right? Oh, those are, those are their mythologies and their folk ways and their spiritual beliefs, and they're dismissed like that. However... You know, over over the last like ten years, especially um, anthropological researchers keep proving oral traditions correct. Mm. You know, there there are there are several examples now of of an oral tradition stating that you know an indigenous population was in a given area for thousands and thousands of years before the quote unquote scientific record suggests that they were, only for a discovery to prove that oral tradition to be like scientifically sound and accurate. Mm-hmm. And what we have here is, or what we should have here in this movie, rather, in in The Earth, is a recognition that positivism and the way that we framed it today is not the end-all be-all of how humans aggregate knowledge. You know, like, they're, they're like oral traditions versus writing is a great example, right? In, in the positivistic tradition, writing is the superior method because it freezes and fixes things. However, if you've tried to read a philosopher who died in the 1800s today, you're going to have a hell of a time parsing their texts. Words mean different things. Social situations change. Things shift dramatically between now and then, making reading them quite the challenge if you're not used to it already. Mm -hmm. Oral traditions are resilient to that. Oral traditions can be updated. You know, they're they're more immune to the shift of language in that respect. They're 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 not frozen in time and require this constant translation process. And I think on a on a kind of basic level, there's a uh, you know, Ernst Bloch has this great saying where he says that sometimes it's good to think in stories, mm-hmm. um, because actually narrative presupposes a sort of different kind of intellectual work right you're not just being given a series of facts with which to ascertain the uh relative truth value or or lack of that lack thereof but you're given a chance to uh like engage with a kind of level of consciousness i think that's i think that's why this uh film kind of refuses the distinction like a, a lesser film would have gone Oh, Zach's just, he's just, he's just crazy mm-hmm. because he's been, he's been driven mad by the forest spirit. Um, and it never does that. It also goes, it goes, actually, maybe what's more troubling is Olivia is the one who's been driven mad, right? This, this, mm-hmm. this the positivist, um, empiricist mode of science has been revealed to be like, uh, full of its own contradictions and, and, uh, ways of working which are not nearly as rationalist as it would like to think. And 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 I think what's especially interesting is that what if what if we consider Zach and and Olivia as the only two that are sane? You <laughs> yeah, know, they 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 have found a new life form that they now realize to be sentient, and they're attempting communication. 
Yeah, Olivia and, says, you know, the, the stakes are too high. Yep. Right? Exactly. And so Which you, brings you, up this idea of like, yeah. how do we even how do we even engage with the non-human subject? How do we even kind of deal with that? And this, I think, is one of the most interesting questions, right? Because if if we we kind of accept that premise that Martin and Alma are actually the ones that are kind of completely crazed and insane from the perspective of the movie, that implicates all of us, right? Because they're mm-hmm. coming, they're, they're the emissaries from our world order and our ontology entering into the kind of mycorrhizal network of the film, you know, and and we're the ones that have gone mad. You know, the, the, they talk about Parang Fag, the, the kind of folk uh, god of the woods, right? This kind of mycological deity. As as the original beliefs saw it as... as a, a, a man who got lost in the woods and then became a spirit who helps travelers. But then they later uncover that it's actually its own being and it wasn't seeking to help others, but it was actually calling out for help. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, yeah. the way that we humans are changing the world are, is starting to impact creatures like itself or beings like itself rather. And the implication there is that Martin and Alma are despotic, cruel, and totally crazed. And Zach and Olivia are the ones that are level-headed. <laughs> and it's this notion again of, of um, you know, Jason W. Moore's notion of the web of life, right? This idea that there is, it's almost impossible or it's incredibly damaging to think of this distinction between nature and culture between humans and the natural world um and what's much more kind of valuable and opens up much more interesting avenues of kind of thinking through things like consciousness and subjectivity and interrelatedness is to think of ourselves as always already um entwined Mm -hmm. entangled with a kind of wider web of consciousness itself yeah, a- a- absolutely, right? Even on a very base level, our, our ways of knowing are fundamentally woven in to a, a, this greater connectivity of life. You know, um, Alma and Martin see themselves as distinct and separate from the woods, where Zach and Olivia have just fully grasped the sheer connectivity that they're dealing with. And, yeah, and, and we see absolutely. the struggle hatch from that point. Um, which raises kind of interesting philosophical question, right? You, your monster is never depicted mm-hmm. um, because it's unrepresentable. But really, it's about two consciousnesses, two minds meeting. Um, and at, right at the end with what happens to Alma, two minds kind of like becoming a new kind of subject. Mm-hmm. Um which raises the really interesting question of panpsychism, um, which is maybe my, my one of my favorite theories of philosophy of mind, which is that mind is a kind of universal aspect of existence. That consciousness is physicalism. It, 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 like the world is not just dead stuff. It's not just kind of inert mm-hmm. nothingness. There is there is mind and and perhaps even intention behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's. Um, you know the the classic definition is is Plato, uh, Plato who said that this world is indeed a living being, being a living being endowed with a soul and intelligence, a single visible living entity containing all other living entities, which by their nature 
are all related, which is uh, from the Timaeus. So what do you think of this as a film about panpsychism, about the idea of like these folk rituals are ways of negotiating the distinction between the the mind that is human and the mind which is um, out there in the universe? So this is something that makes me think that In the Earth is an incredibly hopeful and uplifting movie. Um because I think traditionally in horror cinema, when we have characters realizing that there there is a mind, right? There is an agency that is kind of outside of the human and embedded somewhere in the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, you get movies where the human is now portrayed as some kind of cancer, some kind of rot. You know, like as as the sole thing that is out of tune with with kind of a greater mind. And and this movie doesn't take that route. It doesn't go the we you know hashtag we are the virus as part of another part of the COVID cinema landscape. You know, um, this this I think takes a much more utopian vision towards its end, right? And it suggests that it's not that humans are inherently corrupt or inherently wicked or somehow external to this process, mm-hmm. but it does suggest that we've lost our way and that it can be regained. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. I think it's I think it's it's a film about but about a kind of becoming, right? It's about what ca- what can the human be if we discard this notion of a kind of sealed Cartesian subject? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what if what if humans could through the through a kind of um, a process a a process ontology, a process kind of philosophy of mind? What if what if we could um, become something greater than ourselves? Um, which, again, I think is quite quite hopeful. It ties into uh, Bloch's speculative materialism, this idea that actually existence is unfinished. Um, mm-hmm. As he put it in his kind of very typical style, Genesis is not at the beginning, it's at the end. Uh, when you reach the end of the, the human subject in the very narrow anthropocentric definition of that, you actually start to have something new. Um, mm-hmm. And I think far too long, for far too long, we've we've seen like the apocalypse as the the end of something and not the beginnings of something new. Apocalypses are unveilings; they're 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 literally revelations of something. Um, and a psychedelia is the revelation of the mind, right? It's the the dream of the mind, as it were. Um, so, and that's what this film is about. It's about um, it's about what could humans become. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.